Well, uh, delight to be here. I um, am one of those uh, dastardly metaphysicians. Okay. And uh, I'd like to pick up on some of the, um, just a few of the more philosophical uh, underpinnings uh, that uh, were being talked about there. I'm very glad to see that we both have a quote from J.P. Morland. Um, he's a Christian philosopher of religion, but also a philosopher of science. And I'd just like to start by sort of reiterating this idea that, as Morland says, Christianity claims to be a knowledge tradition and places knowledge at the centre of its proclamation and the concept of Christian discipleship. Christianity claims to know things as being true, which um, goes to underpin the idea that Christianity claims that there are uh, truths that are not necessarily scientific truths, but that we're not really talking about two different concepts of or types of truth, so much as perhaps different ways of getting at truth, or, or truth in different domains of study. As a philosopher, I would simply define a, a true belief as one that tells it like it is. And you may be telling it like it is about how chemistry works, or you may be telling it like it is about how God goes about his business. Um, and if in either case you're telling it like it is, then you are uh, telling a truth. Thomas Aquinas, as well, he called theology the queen of sciences back in the day when science still meant just knowledge, assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. And of course, back in the medieval day, um, science was a term that just applied to all knowledge rather than applying to knowledge of the physical world as it does now. That kind of knowledge was called natural philosophy. Natural philosophy developed into what we now call science. But on Aquinas' view, theology is the queen of science, assisted by her handmaiden philosophy, and part of philosophy was natural philosophy, the study of the natural world. I certainly agree with Keith that Christianity and science have some overlapping interests. I don't think that there is a fundamental conflict between the two. I also think it's too simple to say that they're simply um, compartmentalised kind of areas of discourse. Um, but I think they do have overlapping interests. Um, if you divided Christian spirituality up into its, its beliefs, its attitudes, its kind of way of acting in the world... I think that would apply to any kind of spirituality. Christianity would kind of cash those out in particular ways, of course. You'll notice various overlapping interests between Christian spirituality and science in all of those areas. In terms of attitudes, both would have an interest in our, our value attitudes, something philosophers called axiology, in how we know things. What is knowledge? What is truth? Uh, can we have access to truth in whatever realm of study? Um, that's uh, epistemology. We'd have uh, an interesting community. Science is a communal activity that crucially depends upon relationships and certain uh, values, attitudes towards honesty in representing of one's findings and so on. In terms of actions, scientists should have a big interest in the, the ethics of the application of their knowledge of the world, in the, uh, the ethics of their research 
methodology, for example, can be very controversial sometimes. Uh, in technology, in, in things that it tells us about environment, these are all things that faith as well should have an interest in. But most, most, most crucially for the subject that we're kind of looking at this evening, in terms of faith's beliefs, Christian faith does make certain claims about the nature of reality, and it may very well be, at least, that some of those overlap with the interest in the nature of reality that science has. In instances where there is this overlapping interest between science and Christianity, in principle, those interests could be coming from incompatible viewpoints. They could be, in principle, a clash. Or not. And if there's not a clash, then it could be simply a matter of, of mere compatibility, of mere coherence, of kind of Stephen Jay Gould's, they're not really talking about the same uh, the same uh, aspect of the reality, so they're not in, in, in potential conflict with one another. They very happily take different uh, perspectives on it, like the, the whole kettle boiling, is it because of the, the, what the heating element is doing in terms of thermodynamics, or is it because of my desire for a cup of coffee? Don't really have to choose between those explanations. They're coherent explanations. Or even beyond that, a ma matter of uh, what's called consonance, the presence of mutual support in one direction or another or both. I'd just like to spend a few moments debunking what's been called the, the warfare model of the relationship between science and, and Christianity in history and going from this idea of coherence to, to consonance. Thomas Dixon is an atheist philosopher of science or agnostic at least and he says that although the idea of a warfare between science and religion remains widespread and popular. Recent academic writing on the subject has been devoted primarily to undermining the notion of an inevitable conflict. Alistair McGrath, who was a scientist who then retrained as a Christian theologian, says that this idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. Michael Roos, well-known uh, agnostic, stroke atheist, philosopher of science from America, says this warfare metaphor, which was beloved in the 19th century by rationalists, has only a tenuous application to reality. For most of the history of Christianity, the church was itself the home of science. I'd be with American philosopher of science Alvin Plantinga when he says that modern science arose within the bosom of Christianity. It's a spectacular display of the image of God in human beings. I think one of the questions we had earlier was picking up on this notion of, well, how come we have this idea that we can do science, that we can have access to a meaningful truth about reality? How do we explain science itself, our ability to do science? And Ian Barber, his book, When Science Meets Religion, puts it this way, a good case can be made that the doctrine of creation, and let me distinguish that doctrine of creation, the idea that there's a God who created everything from any particular model of how God did that that Christians might disagree about, but at least the doctrine of creation helps set the stage for scientific activity as we now understand science. Both Greek and biblical thought, thought asserted that the world was orderly and intelligible, 
But the Greeks held that this order was necessary. That one could therefore deduce its structure from first principles. You could kind of sit down in your armchair and think, well, planets, obviously, they must go in circles, mustn't they? Because that's the perfect geometrical figure. Whereas biblical thought held that the world didn't have to be the way that it was. The details of its order could only be discovered by observing reality. You'd have to go, well, I suppose God could have made the planets go in circles if he'd wanted to. But who am I to prejudge what he wanted to do? I'd better go and see how he actually did it. Whilst still holding on to the idea that the way in which it was done, however that was, would be a rationally understandable, orderly manner. Modern scientist, says uh, Edwin Grant in his uh, History of Natural Philosophy from Cambridge University Press, are heirs to the remarkable achievements of their medieval predecessors. More and more historians and philosophers of science are actually tracing the roots of uh, modern science, not only into the, uh, the Renaissance kind of period, but back into the medieval period as well. Uh, as Alfred North Whitehead famously put it, modern science must come from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Faith in the possibility of science, generated antecedently from the development of modern scientific theory, is an unconscious derivative from medieval theology, or perhaps in many cases conscious indeed, as C.S. Lewis very neatly summarised this in much more memorable form. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in the lawgiver. Science, in order to function, makes many philosophical presuppositions, many assumptions at a philosophical level, that science itself cannot prove to be true, because science itself must assume to be true in order even to function. So there's a metaphysical undergirding to the whole scientific project that include, I would argue, such things as there are knowable objective values, including truth. That the natural world itself is not divine, as in pantheism, and so it's not impious to experiment upon the world, because when you do experiments on the world, you're not subjecting God to experiments. That the natural world isn't governed by multiple competing or capricious uh, intellects. That a kind of polytheistic or animistic worldview is false. That nevertheless the natural world is governed by a rational order. That the human mind is at least to some degree able to understand that rational order. That our, our cognitive and our sensory faculties are generally reliable at least. And that this rational order can't be deduced from first principles, but must be observed and experimented upon in order to be discovered. James Hannam puts it like this in his rather wonderful book, God's Philosophers, How the Medieval World Laid the Foundation of Modern Science. To understand why science was attractive even before it could demonstrate its success... It's one thing to say, well, look, you know, why do we do science? Because it works. But why do you start doing it before you've found out that it works? Because it's necessary to look at things from this medieval viewpoint. The starting point for all natural philosophy, science, 
in the medieval ages was that nature had been created by God. It made it a legitimate area of study because through nature man could learn something about its creator. They thought that the world followed these rules that God had ordained for it. And because he was consistent and not capricious, those natural laws would be constant and worth scrutinizing and asking after as Kepler Put it, the chief aim of all the investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by my God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. And Hannum also notes that these scholars rejected Aristotle, the Greek philosopher's contention that the laws of nature were bounded by necessity. They are rational, contingent realities in the Christian view. And so the only way to discover them was to go and look and so on. Let me diagram it with this rather wonderful medieval picture. Here's God in the, uh, the Garden of Eden. If you believe that there is a, a rational person behind the universe who has created the natural world in all of its intricacy and variety and so on, however he did that, and you believe that that same being has created humanity in his image, then it becomes not only natural to think that humans could understand something of the nature of God in whose image they are made, but they could understand something of the nature of nature. That the way that the human mind and senses work in relation to reality comes from the same rational, moral source that the world out there comes from. And so one expects there to be a, a marriage possible here between us and our knowledge of the world because both come from the same creator. Steve Fuller is a very interesting British intellectual, professor of uh, sociology of science, and he's not a Christian. Uh, most I can make out, he is uh, an agnostic. But he says this. And I want to just leave you with two very interesting quotes from Steve Fuller. He says, while I cannot honestly say I believe in a divine personal creator, no plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Atheism, as a positive doctrine, has done precious little for science. Science, says Fuller, makes sense only if there's an overall design to nature that we're especially well-equipped to fathom. Even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day -day animal survival. You know, he's kind of saying it might make sense to think that Maybe some sort of evolutionary history might have programmed us to be able to you know, make good judgments about when rocks are going to fall on us, if they're falling off a cliff edge above us or something. We need that to kind of survive. But to equip us with the ability to understand quantum mechanics? Humanity's creation in the image of God, says Fuller, provides the clearest historical rationale for the rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. And I think when uh, a non-theist 
sociologist of science can make remarks like that in his work, uh, it is a rather um, powerful debunking of the, the simple um, surety of the kind of Dawkinsian science and all religious belief. There is no possible rapprochement uh, between the two. There must be an inevitable conflict, an inevitable conflict between Christianity and the pursuit of science that Christianity itself gave birth to. I don't think so.